Section 7 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 4. Of the State of the Primitive Church, and the Mode of Government in Use Before the Papacy. The divisions of this chapter are 1. The Mode of Government in the Primitive Church, sections 1 to 10. 2. The Formal Ordination of Bishops and Ministers in the Primitive Church, sections 10 to 15. Sections 1. The Method of Government in the Primitive Church, not in every respect conformable to the rule of the Word of God. Three distinct orders of ministers. 2. First, the bishop, for the sake of preserving order, presided over the presbyters or pastors, the office of bishop, presbyter and bishop the same, the institution of this order ancient. 3. The office of bishop and presbyters, strictly preserved in the primitive church. 4. Of archbishops and patriarchs, very seldom used, for what end instituted hierarchy and improper name, and not used in scripture. 5. Deacons, the second order of ministers in the primitive church, their proper office, the bishop their inspector, subdeacons, their assistants, archdeacons, their presidents, an adventitious office conferred in honor on the deacons. 6. Mode in which the goods of the church were anciently dispensed. 1. The support of the poor. 2. Due provision for the ministers of the church. 7. The administration at first free and voluntary. The revenues of the church afterwards classed under four heads. 8. A third part of the revenues devoted to the fabric of churches. To this, however, when necessary, the claim of the poor was preferred. Sayings, testimonies, and examples to this effect, from Cyril, Acacius, Jerome, Experius, Ambrose. 9. The clerisy, among whom were the doorkeepers and acolytes, were the names given to the exercises used as a kind of training for trials. 10. Second part of the chapter, treating of the calling of ministers, some error introduced in course of time in respect to celibacy from excessive strictness. In regard to the ordination of ministers, full regard not always paid to the consent of the people. Why the people less anxious to maintain their right? Ordinations took place at stated times. 11. In the ordination of bishops, the liberty of the people maintained. 12. Certain limits afterwards introduced to restrain the inconsiderate license of the multitude. 13. This mode of election long prevailed. Testimony of Gregory. Nothing repugnant to this in the decretials of Gratian. 14. The form of ordination in the ancient church. 15. This form gradually changed. Number 1. Hitherto we have discoursed of the order of church government as delivered to us in the pure word of God, and of ministerial offices as instituted by Christ. Chapter 1, sections 5 and 6. Chapter 3. 
Now that the whole subject may be more clearly and familiarly explained, and also better fixed in our minds, it will be useful to attend to the form of the early church, as this will give us a kind of visible representation of the divine institution. For although the bishops of those times published many canons, in which they seemed to express more than is expressed by the sacred volume, yet they were so cautious in framing all their economy on the word of God, the only standard, that it is easy to see that they scarcely in any respect departed from it. Even if something may be wanting in these enactments, still, as they were sincerely desirous to preserve the divine institution, and have not strayed far from it, it will be of great benefit here briefly to explain what their observance was. As we have stated that three classes of ministers are set before us in Scripture, so the early church distributed all its ministers into three orders. For from the order of presbyters, part were selected as pastors and teachers, while to the remainder was committed the censure of manners and discipline. To the deacons belonged the care of the poor and the dispensing of alms. Readers and acolytes were not the names of certain offices, but those whom they called clergy, they accustomed from their youth to serve the church by certain exercises, that they might the better understand for what they were destined, and afterwards come better prepared for their duty, as I will shortly show at greater length. Accordingly, Jerome, in setting forth five orders in the church, enumerates bishops, presbyters, deacons, believers, catechumens, to the other clergy and monks he gives no proper place. Number two. All, therefore, to whom the office of teaching was committed, they called presbyters, and in each city these presbyters selected one of their number, to whom they gave the special title of bishop, lest, as usually happens, from equality dissension should arise. The bishop, however, was not so superior in honor and dignity as to have dominion over his colleagues, but as it belongs to president in an assembly to bring matters before them, collect their opinions, take precedence of others in consulting, advising, exhorting, guide the whole procedure by his authority, and execute what is decreed by common consent, a bishop held the same office in a meeting of presbyters. And the ancients themselves confessed that this practice was introduced by human arrangement, according to the exigency of the times. Thus Jerome, on the epistle to Titus, chapter 1, says, A bishop is the same as a presbyter, and before dissensions were introduced into religion by the instigation of the devil, and it was said among the people, I am of Paul, and I of Cephas, churches were governed by a common council of presbyters. Afterwards, that the seeds of dissension might be plucked up, the whole charge was devolved upon mandatory rescripts, preventions, and the like. But they all conduct one, Therefore, as presbyters know that by the custom of the church they are subject to him who presides, so let bishops know that they are greater than presbyters more by custom than in consequence of our Lord's appointment, and ought to rule the church for the common good. In another place he shows how ancient the custom was, for he says that at Alexandria, from Mark the Evangelist, as far down as Heraclas and Dionysus, presbyters always placed one, selecting from themselves, in a higher rank, and gave him the name of bishop. Each city, therefore, had a college of presbyters, consisting of pastors and teachers, for they all performed to the people that office of teaching, exhorting, and correcting, which Paul enjoins on bishops. 
and that they might leave a seed behind them, they made it their business to train the younger men who had devoted themselves to the sacred warfare. To each city was assigned a certain district, which took presbyters from it, and was considered as it were incorporated into that church. Each presbyter, as I have said, merely to preserve order and peace, was under one bishop, who, though he excelled others in dignity, was subject to the meeting of the brethren. But if the district which was under his bishopric was too large for him to be able to discharge all the duties of bishop, presbyters were distributed over it in certain places to act as his substitutes in minor matters. These were called corpuscopi, rural bishops, because they represented the bishops throughout the province. Number 3. But, in regard to the office of which we now treat, the bishop as well as the presbyters behooved to employ themselves in the administration of word and sacraments. For, at Alexandria only, as Aureus had there troubled the church, it was enacted that no presbyter should deliver an address to the people. As Socrates says, Tripartite History, Book 9. Jerome does not conceal his dissatisfaction with the enactment. It certainly would have been deemed monstrous for one to give himself out as a bishop, and yet not show himself a true bishop by his conduct. Such, then, was the strictness of those times, that all ministers were obliged to fulfill the office as the Lord requires of them. Nor do I refer to the practice of one age only, since not even in the time of Gregory, when the church had almost fallen, certainly had greatly degenerated from ancient purity, would any bishop have been tolerated who abstained from preaching. In some parts of his twenty-fourth epistle he says, The priest dies when no sound is heard from him, for he calls forth the wrath of the unseen judge against him if he walks without the sound of preaching. Elsewhere he says, When Paul testifies that he is pure from the blood of all men, Acts twenty twenty-six, by his words, we, who are called priests, are charged, are arraigned, are shown to be guilty, since to those sins which we have of our own we add the deaths of other men, for we commit murder as often as lukewarm and silent we see them daily going to destruction. He calls himself and others silent when less assiduous in their work than they ought to be, since he does not spare even those who did their duty partially. What think you would he do in the case of those who entirely neglected it? For a long time, therefore, it was regarded in the church as the first duty of a bishop to feed the people by the word of God, or to edify the church, in public and private, with sound doctrine. Number 4. As to the fact that each province had an archbishop among the bishops, see chapter 7, section 15, and, moreover, that in the Council of Nicaea patriarchs were appointed to be superior to archbishops, in order and dignity, this was designed for the preservation of discipline, although in treating of the subject here it ought not to be omitted that the practice was very rare. The chief reason for which these orders were instituted was, that if anything occurred in any church which could not be well explicated by a few, it might be referred to a provincial synod. If the magnitude or difficulty of the case demanded a larger discussion, patriarchs were employed along with synods, and from them there was no appeal except to a general council. To the government thus constituted, some gave the name of hierarchy, a name, in my opinion, improper, certainly one not used by scripture. For the Holy Spirit designed to provide that no one should dream of primacy or domination in regard to the government of the church, but if, 
disregarding the term, we look to the thing, we shall find that the ancient bishops had no wish to frame a form of church government different from that which God had prescribed in his word. Number 5. Nor was the case of deacons then different from what it had been under the apostles. Chapter 3, section 6. For they received the daily offerings of the faithful, and the annual revenues of the church, that they might apply them to their true uses. In other words, partly in maintaining ministers, and partly in supporting the poor. At the sight of the bishop, however, to whom they every year gave an account of their stewardship. For, although the canons uniformly make the bishop the dispenser of all goods of the church, this is not to be understood as if he by himself undertook that charge, but because it belonged to him to prescribe to the deacon who were to be admitted to the public alimony of the church, and to point out what persons, and in what portions, the residue was to be distributed, and because he was entitled to see whether the deacon faithfully performed his office. Thus, in the canons which they ascribe to the apostles, it is said, We command that the bishop have the affairs of the church under his control. For if the souls of men, which are more precious, have been entrusted to him, much more is he entitled to have the charge of money matters, so that under his control all may be dispensed to the poor by the presbyters and deacons, that the ministration may be made reverently and with due care. And in the council of Antioch it was decreed that bishops, who intermeddled with the effects of the church, without the knowledge of the presbyters and deacons, should be restrained. But there is no occasion to discuss this point farther, since it is evident, from many of the letters of Gregory, that even at that time, when the ecclesiastical ordinances were otherwise much vitiated, it was still the practice for the deacons to be, under the bishops, the stewards of the poor. It is probable that at the first subdeacons were attached to deacons, to assist them in the management of the poor, but the distinction was gradually lost. Archdeacons began to be appointed when the extent of the revenues demanded a new and more exact method of administration, though Jerome mentions that it already existed in his day. It is mentioned also by Chrysostom, Epistola ad Innocent. To them belonged the amount of revenues, possessions, and furniture, and the charge of the daily offerings. Hence Gregory declares to the archdeacon, Solitanus, that the blame rested with him if any of the goods of the church perished through fraud or negligence. The reading of the word to the people, an exhortation to prayer, was assigned to them, and they were permitted, moreover, to give the cup in the sacred supper. But this was done for the purpose of honoring their office, that they might perform it with greater reverence, when they were reminded by such symbols that what they discharged was not some profane stewardship, but a spiritual function dedicated to God. Number 6. Hence, also, we may judge what was the use, and of what nature was the distribution of ecclesiastical goods. You may everywhere find, from both the decrees of synods and from ancient writers, that whatever the church possessed, either in lands or in money, was the patrimony of the poor. Accordingly, the saying is ever and anon sounded in the ears of bishops and deacons, Remember that you are not handling your own property, but that destined for the necessities of the poor. If you dishonestly conceal or dilapidate it, you will be guilty of blood. Hence they are admonished to distribute them to those to whom they are due, with the greatest fear and reverence, as in the sight of God, without respect of persons. Hence, also, in Chrysostom, Ambrose, Augustine, and other like bishops, 
those grave obtestations in which they assert their integrity before the people. But since it is just in itself, and was sanctioned by a divine law, that those who devote their labor to the church shall be supported at the public expense of the church, and some presbyters in that age, having consecrated their patrimony to God, had become voluntarily poor, the distribution was so made that aliment was afforded to ministers, and the poor were not neglected. Meanwhile, it was provided that the ministers themselves, who ought to be an example of frugality to others, should not have so much as might be abused for luxury or delicacy, but only what might be needful to support their wants. For those clergy who cannot be supported by their own patrimony, says Jerome, commit sacrilege if they accept what belongs to the poor, and by such abuse eat and drink judgment to themselves. Number 7. At first the administration was free and voluntary, when bishops and deacons were faithful of their own accord, and when integrity of conscience and purity of life supplied the place of laws. Afterwards, when, from the cupidity and depraved desires of some, bad examples arose, canons were framed, to correct these evils, and divided the revenues of the church into four parts, assigning one to the clergy, another to the poor, another to the repairs of churches and other edifices, a fourth to the poor, whether strangers or natives. For though other canons attribute this last part to the bishop, it differs in no respect from the division which I have mentioned, for they did not mean that it is his property, which he may devour alone or squander in any way he pleases, but that it may enable him to use the hospitality which Paul requires in that order. 1 Timothy 3.2 This is the interpretation of Galatius and Gregory. For the only reason which Galatius gives why the bishop should claim anything to himself is that he may be able to bestow it on captives and strangers. Gregory speaks still more clearly. It is the custom of the apostolic see, says he, to give command to the bishop who has been ordained to divide all the revenues into four portions, namely, one to the bishop and his household for hospitality and maintenance, another to the clergy, a third to the poor, a fourth to the repair of churches. The bishop, therefore, could not lawfully take for his own use more than was sufficient for moderate and frugal food and clothing. When any one began to wanton, either in luxury or ostentation and show, he was immediately reprimanded by his colleagues, and if he obeyed not, was deprived of his honors. Number 8. Moreover, the sum expended on the adorning of churches was at first very trifling, and even afterwards, when the church had become somewhat more wealthy, they in that matter observed mediocrity. Still, whatever money was then collected was reserved for the poor, when any greater necessity occurred. Thus Cyril, when a famine prevailed in the province of Jerusalem, and the want could not otherwise be supplied, took the vessels and robes and sold them for the support of the poor. In like manner, Acacius, bishop of Amida, when a great multitude of the Persians were almost destroyed by famine, having assembled the clergy and delivered this noble address, our God has no need of either chalices or salvers, for he neither eats nor drinks, melted down the plate, that he might be able to furnish food and obtain the means of ransoming the miserable. Jerome, also, while inveighing against the excessive splendor of churches, relates that Exuperius, bishop of Thalos, in his day, though he carried the body of the Lord in a wicker basket and his blood in a glass, nevertheless suffered no poor man to be hungry. What I lately said of Acacius, Ambrose relates of himself, 
for when the Arians assailed him for having broken down the sacred vessels for the ransom of captives, he made this most admirable excuse. He who sent the apostles without gold has also gathered churches without gold. The church has gold not to keep but to distribute, and to give support to necessity. What need is there of keeping what is of no benefit? Are we ignorant how much gold and silver the Assyrians carried off from the temple of the Lord? Is it not better for a priest to melt them for the support of the poor, if other means are wanting, than for a sacrilegious enemy to carry them away? Would not the Lord say, Why have you suffered so many poor to die of hunger, and you certainly had gold wherewith to minister to their support? Why have so many captives been carried away and not redeemed? Why have so many been slain by the enemy? It had been better to preserve living than metallic vessels. These charges you will not be able to answer. For what could you say? I fear, lest the temple of God should want ornament. He would answer, Sacraments require not gold, and things which are not bought with gold, please not buy gold. The ornament of the sacraments is the ransom of captives. In a word we see the exact truth of what he elsewhere says, viz., that whatever the church then possessed was the revenue of the needy. Again, a bishop has nothing but what belongs to the poor. Number 9. We have now reviewed the ministerial offices of the ancient church. For others, of which ecclesiastical writers make mention, were rather exercises and preparations than distinct offices. These holy men, that they might leave a nursery of the church behind them, received young men who, with the consent and authority of their parents, devoted themselves to the spiritual warfare under their guardianship and training, and so formed them from their tender years, that they might not enter on the discharge of the office as ignorant novices. All who received this training were designated by the general name of clerks. I could wish that some more appropriate name had been given them, for this appellation had its origin in error, or, at least in proper feeling, since the whole church is by Peter denominated Kleros, Clarus, that is, the inheritance of the Lord, 1 Peter 5.3. It was in itself, however, a most sacred and salutary institution, that those who wished to devote themselves and their labor to the church should be brought up under the charge of the bishop, so that no one should minister to the church unless he had been previously well trained, unless he had in early life imbibed sound doctrine, unless by stricter discipline he had formed habits of gravity and severer morals, been withdrawn from ordinary business, and accustomed to spiritual cares and studies. For as tyros in the military art are trained by mock fights for true and serious warfare, so there was a rudimentary training by which they were exercised in clerical duty before they were actually appointed to office. First, then, they entrusted them with the opening and shutting of the church, and called them ostieri, Next, they gave the name of accolades to those who assisted the bishop in domestic services and constantly attended him, first, as a mark of respect, and secondly, that no suspicion might arise. Moreover, that they might gradually become known to the people and recommend themselves to them, and at the same time might learn to stand at the gaze of all and speak before all, that they might not, when appointed presbyters, be overcome with shame when they came forward to teach, the office of reading in the desk was given them. In this way they were gradually advanced, so that they might prove their carefulness in separate exercises, until they were appointed subdeacons. All I mean by this is, 
that these were rather the rudimentary exercises of Tiros than functions which were accounted among the true ministries of the church. Number 10. In regard to what we have set down as the first and second heads of the calling of ministers, viz., the persons to be elected and the religious care to be therein exercised, the ancient church followed the injunction of Paul and the examples of the apostles. First, they were accustomed to meet for the election of pastors with the greatest reverence and with earnest prayer to God. Moreover, they had a form of examination by which they tested the life and doctrines of those who were to be elected by the standard of Paul. 1 Timothy 3.2 Only here they sometimes erred from excessive strictness by exacting more of a bishop than Paul requires, and especially, in process of time, by exacting celibacy, but in other respects their practice corresponded with Paul's description. In regard to our third head, however, viz., who were entitled to appoint ministers, they did not always observe the same rule. Anciently none were admitted to the number of the clergy without the consent of the whole people, and hence Cyprian makes a labored apology for having appointed Aurelius a reader without consulting the church, because, although done contrary to custom, it was not done without reason. He thus premises, In ordaining clergy, dearest brethren, we are wont previously to consult you, and weigh the manners and merits of each by the common advice. But as in these minor exercises there was no great danger, inasmuch as they were appointed to a long probation, and unimportant function, the consent of the people ceased to be asked. Afterwards, in other orders also, with the exception of the bishopric, the people usually left the choice and decision to the bishop and presbyters, who thus determined who were fit and worthy, unless, perhaps, when new presbyters were appointed to parishes, for then the express consent of the inhabitants of the place behooved to be given. Nor is it strange that in this matter the people were not very anxious to maintain their right, for no subdeacon was appointed who had not given a long proof of his conduct in the clerical office, agreeably to the strictness of discipline then in use. After he had approved himself in that degree, he was appointed deacon, and therefore, if he conducted himself faithfully, he attained to the honor of a presbyter. Thus none were promoted whose conduct had not, in truth, been tested for many years under the eye of the people. There were also many canons for punishing their faults, so that the church, if she did not neglect the remedies, was not burdened with bad presbyters or deacons. In the case of presbyters, indeed, the consent of citizens was always required, as is attested by the canon, which is attributed to Anacletius. In fine, all ordinations took place at stated periods of the year, that none might creep in stealthily without the consent of the faithful, or be promoted with too much facility without witnesses. Number 11. In electing bishops, the people long retained their right of preventing any one from being intruded who is not acceptable to all. Accordingly, it was forbidden by the Council of Antioch to induct any one on the unwilling. This also Leo I carefully confirms. Hence these passages. Let him be elected whom the clergy and people or the majority demand. Again, let him who is to preside over all be elected by all. He, therefore, who is appointed while unknown and unexamined, must of necessity be violently intruded. Again, let him be elected who is chosen by the clergy and called by the people, and let him be consecrated by the provincials with the judgment of the metropolitan. 
So careful were the Holy Fathers that this liberty of the people should on no account be diminished, that when a general council, assembled at Constantinople, were ordaining Nectarius, they declined to do it without the approbation of the whole clergy and people, as their letter to the Roman Synod testified. Accordingly, when any bishop nominated his successor, the act was not ratified without consenting the whole people. Of this you have not only an example, but the form, in Augustine, in the nomination of Aradius. And Theodoret, after relating that Peter was the successor nominated by Athanasius, immediately adds, that the sacerdotal order ratified it, that the magistracy, chief men, and whole people, by their acclamation, approved. Number 12. It was, indeed, decreed, and I admit on the best grounds, by the Council of Laodicea, Canon 18, that the election should not be left to crowds, for it scarcely ever happens that so many heads, with one consent, settle any affair well. It generally holds true, in certum cindi studia, in contraria vulgus, opposing wishes rend the fickle crowd. For, first, the clergy alone selected, and presented him whom they had selected to the magistrate, or senate and chief men. These, after deliberation, put their signature to the election, if it seemed proper. If not, they chose another whom they more highly approved. The matter was then laid before the multitude, who, although not bound by these previous proceedings, were less able to act tumultuously. Or, if the matter began with the multitude, it was only that it might be known whom they were most desirous to have, the wishes of the people being heard, the clergy at length elected. Thus it was neither lawful for the clergy to appoint whom they chose, nor were they, however, under the necessity of yielding to the foolish desires of the people. Leo sets down this order when he says, The wishes of the citizens, the testimonies of the people, the choice of the honorable, the election of the clergy, are to be waited for. Again, let the testimony of the honorable, the subscription of the clergy, the consent of the magistracy and people, be obtained. Otherwise, says he, it must on no account be done. Nor is anything more intended by the decree of the Council of Laodicea than that the clergy and rulers were not allowed themselves to be carried away by the rash multitude, but rather by their prudence and gravity to repress their foolish desires whenever there was occasion. Number 13. This mode of election was still in force in the time of Gregory, and probably continued to a much later period. Many of his letters, which are extant, clearly prove this, for whenever a new bishop is to be elected, his custom is to write to the clergy, magistrates, and people, sometimes also to the governor, according to the nature of the government. But if, on account of the unsettled state of the church, he gives the oversight of the election to a neighboring bishop, he always requires a formal decision confirmed by the subscriptions of all. Nay, when one Constantius was elected bishop of Milan, and in consequence of the incursions of the barbarians, many of the Milanese had fled to Genoa, he thought that the election would not be lawful unless they too were called together and gave their assent. Nay, five hundred years have not elapsed since Pope Nicholas fixed the election of the Roman pontiff in this way, first, that the cardinal should proceed, next, that they should join to themselves the other clergy, and lastly, that the election should be ratified by the consent of the people. And in the end he recites the decree of Leo, which I lately quoted, and orders it to be enforced in future. 
But should the malice of the wicked so prevail that the clergy are obliged to quit the city, in order to make a pure election, he, however, orders that some of the people shall, at the same time, be present. The suffrage of the emperor, as far as we can understand, was required only in two churches, those of Rome and Constantinople, these being the seats of the empire. For when Ambrose was sent by Valentinianus to Milan with authority to superintend the election of a new bishop, it was an extraordinary proceeding, in consequence of the violent factions which raged among the citizens. But at Rome the authority of the emperor in the election of the bishop was so great that Gregory says he was appointed to the government of the church by his order, though he had been called by the people in regular form. The custom, however, was that when the magistrates, clergy, and people nominated any one, he was forthwith presented to the emperor, who either by approving ratified, or by disapproving annulled the election. There is nothing contrary to this practice in the decretials which are collected by Gracian, where all that is said is, that it was on no account to be tolerated, that canonical election should be abolished, and a king should at pleasure appoint a bishop, and that one thus promoted by violent authority was not to be consecrated by the metropolitans, for it was one thing to deprive the church of her right, and transfer it entirely to the caprice of a single individual. It is another thing to assign to a king or emperor the honor of confirming a legitimate election by his authority. Number 14. It now remains to treat of the form by which the ministers of the ancient church were initiated to their office after election. This was termed by the Latins, ordination or consecration, and by the Greeks, kerotonia, sometimes also kerothesia, though kerotonia properly denotes that mode of election by which suffrages are declared by a show of hands. There is extant a decree of the Council of Nice to the effect that the metropolitans, with all the bishops of the province, were to meet to ordain him who was chosen, but if, from distance or sickness, or any other necessary cause, part were prevented, three at least should meet, and those who were absent signify their consent by letter. And this canon, after it had fallen into desuetude, was afterwards renewed by several councils. All, or at least all who had not an excuse, were enjoined to be present, in order that a stricter examination might be had of the life and doctrines of him who was to be ordained, for the thing was not done without examination. And it appears, from the words of Cyprian, that, in old time, they were not wont to be called after the election, but to be present at the election, and with the view of their acting as moderators, that no disorder might be committed by the crowd. For after saying that the people had the power either of choosing worthy or refusing unworthy priests, he immediately adds, For which reason we must carefully observe and hold by the divine and apostolic tradition, which is observed by us also, and almost by all the provinces, that for the due performance of ordinations all the nearest bishops of the province should meet with the people over whom the person is proposed to be ordained, and the bishop should be elected in presence of the people. But as they were sometimes too slowly assembled, and there was a risk that some might abuse the delay for purposes of intrigue, it was thought that it would be sufficient if they came after the designation was made, and on due investigation consecrated him who had been approved. Number 15. While this was done everywhere without exception, a different custom gradually gained ground, namely, that those who were elected should go to the Metropolitan to obtain ordination. This was owing more to ambition and the corruption of the ancient custom than to any good reason, and not long after, 
the authority of the Romish see being now increased, another still worse custom was introduced, of applying to it for the consecration of bishops of almost all Italy. This we may observe from the letters of Gregory. The ancient rite was preserved by a few cities only, which had not yielded so easily, for instance Milan. Perhaps metropolitan sees only retained their privilege, for, in order to consecrate an archbishop, it was the practice for all the provincial bishops to meet in the metropolitan city. The form used was a laying on of hands. Chapter 19, sections 28-31. I do not read that any other ceremonies were used, except that, in the public meeting, the bishops had some dress to distinguish them from the other presbyters. Presbyters, also, and deacons, were ordained by the laying on of hands, but each bishop, with the college of presbyters, ordained his own presbyters. But though they all did the same act, yet because the bishop presided, and the ordination was performed as it were under his auspices, it was said to be his. Hence ancient writers often say that a presbyter does not differ in any respect from a bishop, except in not having the power of ordaining. End of section 7